get there, place a marker, and turn to Luke chapter 4. So 1 Peter chapter 1, place a marker, and go to Luke chapter 4. It is very convenient when Chris asks you if you're willing to speak and you've just finished teaching a quarter because there's no lack of material. And so in some ways that's a blessing because there's a lot of material. In other ways, there's a lot of material. Where do you want to go in a finite amount of time? So what we're going to do tonight We're going to look at Jesus' interactions with a guy named Peter. Because Jesus has some very, very interesting interactions with Peter that you see reflected in Peter's gospel to us. Peter has learned some things along his path as he journeyed with Jesus side by side, in some cases, in person. And he tells us to pay attention to some of those things. So it's really about Jesus, Peter, and us. So we're going to start off in Luke chapter 4. We're going to see some interactions between Jesus and Peter. The idea is not to spend a whole lot of time, but just enough time to give us all an idea of how Jesus and Peter interacted. So if you're looking through the Gospel of Luke, really the first interaction you see of Peter, he's just kind of mentioned on the side. Jesus is beginning his ministry. He's just dealt with the temptations of Satan. He's begun casting out unclean spirits. And then you get to this verse in 38. Jesus arose from the synagogue and goes to this person's house named Simon. He's just kind of a back character in the story at this point. But really the focus of that story, Peter has a mother-in-law that is sick. He has a really severe fever. They don't know what to do, so they go to Jesus, recognizing him as the healer. In verse 39, so he, being Jesus, stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she arose and served him. So she goes from this intense sickness that's enough that they call Jesus in because they're like, we don't know what to do, Jesus. Can you please heal her? To immediately she gets up and serves them. Again, Peter's there, it's in his house, he's on the side, but we'll see, maybe that has a bigger impact later. So as you go keep reading a couple verses in Luke, we see that the multitudes are pressing Jesus. They're hearing about the good he's doing, about how he's healing the sick, how he's taking care of people. Multitudes are just gathering around him, so he has to get in a boat. Because he's quite pressed on the land, he can't really teach there because of the crowd, so he gets out on the boat so they can hear him. And so he gets on one of the boats, and he's teaching them. And so he's teaching the multitudes, and it happens to be Simon's boat, and he turns to Simon and says, hey, cast out a little further after he's done. Simon, who's a fisherman, knows that it's not the time to fish are buying. And he tells Jesus, he's like, Jesus, look, we've been out there all night, we've caught nothing, but because you tell me to, we will. So he takes the boat out. And when they had done this, verse 6, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. 
And so they signal to the people who are still on shore, like, we need some help, the boat's sinking, let's keep the fish, please come out and get help. And then Peter has a very inter- interesting response to what's been happening. He's a fisherman. He knows how the sea works in human terms. He's dealt with it. He lives with it. That's his hobby. In fact, it's more than his hobby. That's his occupation. He lives or eats based on how the fish bite. And he turns and looks to Jesus and he says, verse 8, He fell down on Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish, which they had taken. And it mentions there were the other three guys that were there with him. There was something about that catch that he knew was different. That was not a catch that he just happens to get when he goes out to fish. There was something behind that. There was a person behind that. There was someone that was holy behind that. Because his first response is not, thank you for catching the fish. It's, you need to get away from me. I'm really sinful. But that's Peter's response. So he keeps following this guy named Jesus. And they deal with a lot of people. They see Jesus heal the centurion servant in chapter 7. They see all these people interact with Jesus, the goodness he brings to their life. And in fact, he says some interesting things. They bring sick people to him, and he says weird things like your sins are forgiven. And it makes everyone stop and everyone consider, wait a second. There's only one person that can say that. So either you're blaspheming, or you're the Christ, you're God. And so people are wrestling with this question. And so he gets through chapter 8, and people are still wrestling with the question. You get to chapter 9. And in verse 18, Jesus is alone with his disciples. And he asks them, hey, who do people say that I am? It's obviously there's something special about Jesus. Who, who do men say that I am? So they go through the list. Some say Elijah. Some say the old prophets has written, written again, risen again. Some say John the Baptist. So he asked them a question. Okay, that's who other people say that I am. Who do you say that I am? And Peter, having seen what he sees, said, You are the Christ of God. Peter's recognizing something in this interaction with Jesus. That he is the Christ, the Son of God. And Peter keeps following him. He keeps following Jesus. He keeps interacting with the people that are coming to Jesus. He teaches them how to pray. They come to him and say, hey, teach us how to pray. John apparently was teaching his disciples. So they're like, hey, John's teaching his disciples, so you teach us how to pray. And so Jesus teaches them about the kingdom in that. And so the Pharisees and scribes begin getting, begin getting prideful. They begin seeing their popularity waning. They begin getting jealous and envious. And so they start coming to Jesus, prompting him with questions. Hey, how, how, how would you answer this, teacher? You're a great teacher. How would you answer this? And Peter sees the correctness and the justice that Jesus displays in those interactions. He's not jumping down their throats. He's just telling them the truth. And anyone that was there saw that. 
the people that are listening to it, the Pharisees walk away humbled, not because their hearts humbled, but because Jesus has humbled them. It's allowed the people to see their hearts and the bad that's in that. And so Peter keeps walking with Jesus and he begins teaching in parables. And Peter asked Jesus, why, why are you teaching in parables? Like some of this stuff is difficult. Talked about a guy, that, a good Samaritan, a name you didn't mention. Why the Samaritan, Jesus? Why the stories? Why the parable of the sower? Why the stories that you had to dig? And Jesus is just teaching him, look, you got to dig. You got to learn. You got to listen. It's about what's in your heart. And then as he begins going towards the end, he starts telling them some more pointed parables. You get parables like the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the prodigal son. As he's heading towards the cross, you can see he's trying to dig a little deeper in their hearts. Because all of those parables would be shown in action for the one who came to seek and save that which was lost. And so the blind man gets his sight. He's crying out to Jesus on the road. The disciples are trying to keep him quiet. Hey, Jesus has stuff to do. The blind man's crying out. Jesus talks to him, has compassion on him. Jesus starts heading towards Jerusalem. And the crowd's happy because they've finally seen the miracles that show the Christ is coming, the Messiah is coming. Everyone's looking forward to this. So they lay the branches down on the road. They take their cloaks down. Jesus is coming in. It's a highlight. It's a high point. Everybody is excited. The king is coming. Rome will be gone. Life will be solved. Life will be good. But Jesus then starts talking about the city that's going to be destroyed. About what's about to happen. And then he talks to them about this idea of a new covenant. This idea that God has always wanted a covenant with his people. And time and time again, you see the covenant word pop up. We see it with Abraham. We see it with Moses and Israel. We see it with David. And finally, God, he said, I'm going to make a new covenant. Not like the ones that were there before. There's going to be a new covenant. And it's not going to be written on stone. It's going to be written in your heart. And he eats the Passover with them. And this Lord and King, this Messiah, stoops down and starts washing their feet. And after they do that, they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mountain of Olives. And Peter is faced with a mob. He sees them coming. He's had some interactions with Jesus and Jesus has said, be careful Peter. Satan's asked to tempt you. And Peter says, look, I'm not going to fall. Everyone else might, but I'm not. I'm willing to die for you. And so the mob comes in Luke chapter 22. And it almost seems like Peter's ready to do that. Other, other passages tell us this mob came out with swords and spears. 
This was not a friendly mob. This was a mob that had weapons. And so Peter drew his weapon, stepped in front of Jesus, and tried to kill someone. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, Peter, put your sword out. This is not the plan. And Peter doesn't seem to understand. What do you mean it's not the plan? You're the king. This is what was prophesied about. Why? And Peter puts his sword in his sheath and takes off running. And they take Jesus. So Peter follows at a distance. And he's warming himself by the fire. And there are people that are talking to Peter, and they're like, one of them comes up and says, I think I saw you in the garden. Peter's like, they want me. Must have been someone else. They must have looked like me. Another one comes up and says, who happens to be a relative of the person Peter tried to kill, says, no, you were there. I saw you there. And he says, no, that was not me. I don't know the guy. And then the third one comes and says, your accent is giving you away. You're not from around here. You're from Galilee. And if you're from Galilee, you know who this guy is. Peter begins to curse and swear, I don't know the guy. As the people got more sure, Peter got more sure that he had no idea who the guy was, who Jesus was. And he was sure he had never followed him. It's just the same guy that had seen his mother-in-law healed. He had seen the biggest catch of fish in his life. This was the guy that when Jesus asked him a question, who, who do you say that I am? You've seen everything. Who do you say that I am? He's like, you're the Christ. But when the mob comes and the unfriendly people come, he doesn't know the guy. I, I, I don't know. But there's an interaction with Peter and Jesus in Luke chapter 22 that makes this more meaningful. So Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. The Lord's talking to Simon. He is Simon, Simon. Indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. So Peter says, I'm ready to die. That, that won't be me. And then Jesus tells him about the rooster. When the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Back when Jesus met Peter in Luke chapter 4, Jesus had the opportunity and the ability to know how the story was going to end. And all along the way, Jesus gave him opportunity after opportunity to see who he was. To have faith in who he was. So that when chapter 22 came, Peter could say, I do know the guy. I followed him. He's the Christ. But Jesus says, Peter, that's not going to happen. I'm going to pray for you that it doesn't. But when you get to that fire and when you say, I don't know the guy, remember me. And when you come back, strengthen your brother. 
It's kind of interesting in this interaction. Jesus says, Satan has asked for you. Sounds a little reminiscent of Job, where God's interacting with Satan, and God's talking to Satan, like, hey, Satan, what, do, what have you been doing? And Satan's like, I've been walking back and forth on the earth. And God's like, well, have, have, have you noticed Job? And Satan's like, yes, I noticed Job. You built a hedge around him, and he's so happy he wouldn't want to do wrong. Satan had come to God asking for Peter. It seems that as you also read through the Gospels, Peter was a little bit of a spokesman for the group. We see that in Acts 2. Peter standing up with the rest of the apostles multiple times. Satan appears, it appears that Satan went after the one that all the rest of the disciples would have followed or would have been influenced by. Satan's going after the top one to discourage Jesus and also to discourage the rest of the apostles. So Jesus tells him, Peter, when you fall, come back and strengthen your brethren. So Jesus gives him a responsibility. Strengthen your brethren. Build your brethren up. You've messed up, but encourage them with that. So then we get to the book of First Peter. Turn back, turn over there. So Peter, thankfully, recognized his mistake. And in the book of Acts, you see a changed man. A man who's in front of authority saying, yes, the Jesus that you crucified is both Lord and Christ. This guy is the Christ. The same man who was nervous about doing it around a fire was suddenly willing to do it in front of people, in front of everyone who heard. So what is the encouragement? What is the strength that we get from Peter's letter? So we'll be looking at kind of the first three chapters. We're going to look at four points. There's a lot more in 1 Peter. So these are not the only ones, but these are just four for time's sake. The first one he mentions, our salvation is founded on the hope, is founded on the hope that the resurrection of Jesus provides. Our salvation is founded on the hope that the resurrection of Jesus provides. Peter got to see Jesus risen. And you saw a change in Peter. First Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, has begot, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We see words in this like abundant mercy. Abundant mercy. God, who according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us to a living hope. And it's kind of interesting because living hope it's alive how is that accomplished through the resurrection of a dead person 
God took the dead, made it alive, and now we can have a living hope. And it's into an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled. We deal physically with things that get corrupted and get defiled. We have a computer program we use at work that depending on how you use it, there are times where you can corrupt it. And you get an error that says the file has been corrupted. Oops, we lost a lot of work. We deal physically with things that get corrupted. Our food gets corrupted if you leave it out long enough. Our vehicles, our houses, our buildings, our anything gets corrupted because of the world we live in. Inheritances, maybe they get corrupted. Maybe you're in line for an inheritance. Something happens with the market or something happens with some financial group and you lose your inheritance. This inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled. It doesn't fade away. It won't just vanish. Reserved in heaven for you. It's reserved. We typically, when we think of reservations, you might stay at a hotel, or you might stay, or you might get dinner, and you get a reservation, and the last thing you think you're going to hear when you get to that place is, sorry, we're at space. You're like, but I have a reservation. This is something that doesn't get away. You get there, and it's for you. There's room for you. It's still there. It's not a computer error, and sorry, we overbooked the rooms, and you don't have a room. It's there. And you are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. There were a lot of people, as Jesus walked on the earth and lived his life, that thought the salvation they were going to get would be a physical salvation. It seems when they thought of this Messiah, when they thought of this king, every picture they got was this physical person that would t- protect them from a physical nation and bring them all the physical comforts that you could want. Thankfully, our salvation is founded in the hope of something a lot more sure. The resurrection's happened. Corinthians tells us that. The resurrection's happened. Because if the resurrection didn't happen, there is no point for us to be here. But it did. So that matters. And that makes the salvation sure. He also tells them, because you have the hope that you have, You're to be holy like God. First Peter one, starting in verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance, but as he who called you as holy, you also should be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold 
from your aimless conduct received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. He says, live as obedient children. Not obeying your desires as in ignorance. Not, uh, it's not, oh, I didn't understand that, so I just kind of did what I thought was best. It's like, that's not the case anymore. You know what you need to do. Live that way. As he who called you is holy, be also holy in all your conduct. Emulate the one who called you. And he says, conduct yourselves with fear. Live seriously. Live soberly. And he mentions a couple reasons. He says, mention soberly because God judges impartial. God looks at everyone. He doesn't judge, judge partially. So, be careful. But the second reason, live right because you've been bought with something that's so... Priceless. You are not redeemed with corruptible things. Again, that word again, corruptible, impure, things that are defiled, things that will get corrupted. You weren't bought with something like that. You were bought with something that lasts, that is pure. But with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and spine. It was perfect. So do your best to live perfectly. Jesus was chosen before the world was created. Verse 20 tells us, Jesus was chosen that this plan would come, but God sent him so that we could have the benefit of seeing him. So that we could have the benefit of recognizing that the resurrection happened and our faith and our hope are in God. Not incorruptible things. He then says, continues, your holiness calls us to proclaim God's praises. So our salvation is founded on the hope that the resurrection of Jesus provides. Our hope calls us to be holy like God, and our holiness calls us to proclaim God's praises. 1 Peter chapter 2. Coming to him as a living stone, verse 4, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones built together up into a spiritual house, a royal priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they were also appointed. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him that called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 
who once were not a people, but are now a people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. He says, you're part of the spiritual house. You're part of the stones on the house. You're not the foundation, so you don't have to worry about that. The foundation is sure. You're built off the rock, the cornerstone that is chosen by God. And others looked at the rock, and they decided that wasn't the rock they wanted to build on. There were builders that, for whatever reason, that's not what they were looking for, that's not what they expected, that's not what they wanted. And so when they ran across the cornerstone, they stumbled. It confused them. They didn't understand. And there were some that were just disobedient, it tells us. There were some that were like, I'm not following, I'm not building, I'm not following, or building off of that cornerstone. The disobedient do not understand the blessing, however, of that cornerstone. It wasn't the expectation, but it was God's plan. You are a chosen generation, a royal priest of the holy nation. The things that the people were looking for, the things the king would bring as they brought them closer to God, this great nation, this priesthood that was pure, they could talk to God, but God's like, you are going to get that. Spiritually. You may not see it physically, but you'll get it spiritually. You were not a people, but now you are. You hadn't received mercy, but now you have. Our holiness calls us to proclaim God's praises. And then the last one he mentions. Our proclamation of God's praises calls us to live differently. Verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from flesh, flesh and lust which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evil words, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Around the fire. I think it's clear Peter felt like a pilgrim and a sojourner. When the questions were asked, Peter recognized, I don't belong here. In a very real sense. And so he says, when you're feeling that way, abstain from the fleshly lusts that war against the soul. Isn't that kind of interesting? Fleshly being physically, the soul being spiritually. Be careful about the fleshly things that tempt the spiritual man. And live honorably. That when there are Gentiles, when they're... And the people did it to Jesus. Jesus mentioned multiple times, if the people are doing this to me, how much more are they going to do it to you, talking to his disciples? So Jesus goes through, not Jesus, Peter goes through some relationships we have. Verse 13 through 17, he says, your relationship to God affects how you obey the government. Verse 18 through 25, your relationship with God affects how you obey your masters, how you obey your employers, 
how you obey people over you in that relationship. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 7, your relationship with God affects how you treat your spouse. And in each of those, he looks back to how God did, or because of your relationship with God, that's why you're doing good to these people. Because in fact, in the master's section, as he's talking to them about masters, he's like, do good even to the bad masters. And he looks at Jesus, he's like, you want to see someone that did good? Verse 21, for this, for to this you were called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. It's not really about the relationship between me and the employer or me and the master. It's about my relationship with me and God. And that dictates how I treat the master, how I treat the employer, how I treat the government, and how I treat the spouse. And then he gets to the end of that in verse 8. So there's specific relationships, but then in verse 8 he says, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviving for reviving, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. It's just spoken by the one who, when push came to shove, cursed and swore he did not know Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus didn't do that to me. Jesus gave me a blessing when I cursed and swore. Do that to others. All of you be of one mind. All of the followers be of one mind. Having compassion for one another. That's something you see stick out so often in Jesus' interaction with people. They're being short-sighted. They're making dumb decisions. They're going against His will. Jesus is looking at them with compassion. And it's because of the hope we have. Peter fell short in a very real and upfront way. It was in a crowd. People saw him. And thankfully, God is willing to, one day, if we follow him, Jesus is willing to say, he's mine, I know him. Thankfully, we serve a God who is patient with his people, who is patient with us, and who is patient with Peter. That's Peter's encouragement for us. Our faith and our hope are not in physical things. Because we have a hope, it requires and it calls us to live holy, be like the one who bought us. Our holiness calls us to proclaim God's praises. When the people were healed by God, 
as you read through the book of Luke, they would not be quiet. They were so thankful for what God had done for them in a very physical sense. How much more us, the people of God, being redeemed in a spiritual sense. And then proclaiming God's praises calls us to live life differently. And that changes our relationships with the people we work with, with the people we live with, and anyone we interact with. And it's because of God's grace and mercy that we can do that. And that we, therefore, can give that gift to others. Because we have been given that gift. Thank you for being here tonight. If we can help you find Jesus, if we can help you seek him, if we can help you know him better. He's the only thing in this life, we sang the song earlier, Cornerstone. He's the only thing that's going to last. Weak are made strong through the Savior's love, through the storms, through the temptations, through the trials, and the times we fall. He is Lord. Stay close to him. And it's only by his grace and mercy 